Hello, it's Stan Stalnaker here in Hub Culture's Emerald City, the virtual metropolis that we're building for the new world. Joining me now for our Chronicles discussion for this week is Professor Sandy Pentland, who's with MIT and the Social Physics Lab there, one of the great experts on essentially social physics. Thanks for joining us today, Sandy. My pleasure. Always good to talk to you. Likewise. Um, you know, we've had many great conversations over the years in, in many places around the world, and it's great to be here online with you. And we're really in a different world than we were six months ago. And you are one of the great experts on sort of analyzing the social side of these societal changes. What would you say are the major trends that you see happening right now that can be linked back to the research that you guys have done around how these things unfold? Well, the, the big thing that's happening right now is a lot of these super optimized uniform systems are breaking uh, because they're under extreme pressure from COVID, but also from things like AI and some of the new digital technologies are putting pressure on it. So there's all this stuff that used to be certain and you could optimize it to death. And all of a sudden it doesn't work because things changed and all the AI uses historical data to optimize. So now it's optimizing for the wrong thing. And so um, it's a, a unique opportunity because uh, we're seeing natural selection at work. Lots of things are falling by the wayside. Uh, I don't mean people. Uh, I mean institutions, rules, ways of doing things. New things are coming forward. The digital shockwave, everything becoming digital. And the question is, is how is this going to play out? And I think that the uh, the thing that everyone seems to be saying, they're coming to the realization that optimizing everything to be uniform and mechanical is really wrong. You need resilience. And resilience, from this sort of biological analogy, requires having heterogeneity. You need to have different ways of doing things in different places. Where you are doesn't have the same disease characteristics as where I am. Uh, AI is different for different people in different places. It's not uniform. It changes over time. And so you're, uh, there's a lot of pressure to have a distributed world where communities find their own solutions, uh, where uh, things interoperate and learn from each other. And you see this in, in some places at hyperspeed, like for instance, all the learning about how to treat uh, COVID is all these research labs that are collaborating with each other at lightning speed. None of that is large government funded or who funded uh, research. Those big organizations put in place the equipment for the lab, but now it's being repurposed to do all these other things. You see the same types of things in governments, where governments are figuring out what to do and watching each other and learning from each other. These are learning networks. Biology teaches you that learning networks are much more robust, much better at dealing with change than uniform systems. And so uh, people are beginning to sort of put effort into these learning systems. Learning systems at the end require data, and it requires sort of intelligent analysis of data. You got to see what the other guy did and ask, is that what I want to do? 
uh, or did he just look like what he got was because of what he did, man? It was really something that I couldn't see. So it becomes this sort of data transfer, data collaboration, data understanding problem, which puts the emphasis on who controls the data, what's visible, what's open. Um, and so you see all across the world, people putting a lot more data into the public good, making it open. And as a consequence, everybody's beginning to optimize their own little area. And what I'm arguing in my new book, for instance, it was Building the New Economy, is that we're at a beautiful moment for that because we have all these new tools, blockchain, open data, the sort of AI type techniques that don't use historical data. Um, and, and we can actually build these learning networks for the first time. Uh, and so that's what I think is is hopefully happening. I mean, there's some really bad examples of this too, uh, of the, the current system. So for instance, in the United States, all over the world, you have these national health systems that have fixed rules that are optimized for cost and outcome. Except that in poor communities, things work different than in rich communities. And so the death rates in poor communities are often twice what they are in rich communities because the rules are wrong for them. So what I argue in the book and what I'm arguing to you now is, is that we need to have community uh, empowerment, community learning from each other um, and get away from this uniform, uh, completely optimized system and build much more of a sort of localized resilience and learning in place. Well, this idea of real-time learning, I mean, it, it's very interesting coming from a professor from MIT, right? Because this is kind of a citadel of learning. And one of the places where, we, you know, in the United States and even around the world, people would consider this to be one of the best places for learning. So how does this idea of like agile real-time learning networks plug into something like MIT, which is uh, sort of a best uh, center for excellence for learning in, in this old world? How are you guys transitioning toward being able to enable this new type of learning? So traditionally, universities are where the received wisdom is handed down generation to generation. And what we're seeing is the received wisdom was good generations ago, but not so good today. And so uh, one of the little secrets of MIT, and particularly the part that I'm uh, in, which is the Media Lab and a thing called Connection Science, which looks at connection, is getting input and interaction across the whole world from everybody. We have industry, we have governments, we have academia. We are not just academia. And what we look for is we look for problems that everybody is sharing and we weigh in on those. And that changes all the time. So for instance, people look at me and they say, how can you have done everything from autonomous vehicles to healthcare to big data to finance policy? Well, because those are the problems that came up and I had tools and views and connections to be able to say something in that area. Speaking of that, what are some of those examples of emerging resilience that you guys are seeing that are working as we kind of navigate our way through not just the public health crisis, but now even an economic crisis. I suppose, would those be the, the fundamentals of building this new economy that you talk about in your new book? Yeah, you know, so 
uh, currently what I see is not the sort of Bitcoins and Ethereums of the world like really taking off. It's that people are building lots of token economies. So in the United States, you know, we see uh, Intuit, which does taxes for everybody, having an internal blockchain. It's not what the libertarians are like, but it's an internal blockchain to allow everybody to control and keep consistency of their tax data. We see uh, we worked with Fidelity to allow people to manage their uh, money across many different institutions without necessarily sharing data. So that's another aspect, the sort of privacy thing. We've seen the EU, uh, which is very slow moving, but adopting this sort of distributed uh, governance, distributed data because of privacy laws and because of security. Mm -hmm. Now people will share insights and not data. So, so you see this coming in in lots of different places and beginning to interoperate with each other. Well, this idea of sharing insights, not data, sounds like it could be very, very interesting in what really seems to be right around the corner, which is this uh, public reaction to surveillance. And so I'd love to ask you a little bit more about what your thoughts are about the emerging surveillance infrastructure and how that can be guided to become a net positive for society versus something that could be, you know, potentially even authoritarian. Um, I think that this is, for many people who are in the leading edge of tech, obviously AI is a looming um, topic of conversation, but in the, in the very near future and, you know, even before the, the, the threat or the looming benefits of AI is this idea of much more pervasive surveillance. And it seems like we're on the cusp of now integrated health surveillance that wasn't necessary six months ago, but now may be fundamental to being able to reopen parts of the economy. So can these technologies that you're talking about play a role in preserving what you might call a good society as surveillance becomes more integrated? So this is one of the um, choice points we as a society have. Do we build a big integrated uniform thing? Let's, let's take health as an example, right? Where there's a national database of X, Y, and Z. And of course, that's immediately brings Big Brother up, okay? And a lot of the traditional AI has been that way. But actually, that's not what you need. The traditional way of holding data, health data is your doctor or your hospital holds the data. And they don't need to actually share the data with anybody else to do this global learning. They need to share insights. Oh, we had this percentage of this. We had that percentage of this. They had these characteristics, not about any person, but about the treatments or the situations. And that sort of sharing is what you see, for instance, in the drug development that's going on now. If they were a little more sophisticated about it and sort of adopted that as a real infrastructure and did the right sort of statistics on it, as opposed to just sort of backing into it, we'd already have much better treatments for COVID right now, because there's all these experiments going on. Mm -hmm. But the medical system and the data sharing, uh, the insight sharing, isn't set up to make really clear statistical decisions based on that. It's all, you know, oh, what's what this? Can we trust that? I mean, uh, this is the sort of thing is where people are beginning to say, this is BS. What we have to do is we have to have 
rules for measuring things. We have to be able to share insights. We have to do that in real time. Your hospital is different than our hospital. We may decide to go in a different way. We may have different resources. We might have a different population. But by putting the sort of insights and statistics together, we can get best policy for everybody. That really is the definition of connection science. <laughs> definition of connection science. And then, and then, you know, another way to sort of put it is in terms of the sort of privacy. So for, for 15 years, we've run into each other at Davos, and I've been trying to run the privacy uh, group there, which, which has been maybe quite successful in the sense that GDPR came out of it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the truth is, is owning your own data doesn't do you very much good at all. Because what are you going to do with it, right? And people talk about, oh, I could get paid for it. Well, you know, it's worth a hundred, couple hundred bucks a year. I mean, okay, not bad, but is that world changing? On the other hand, if I could use my medical data and combine it with other people in my community, I'm not talking about sharing it, just sharing insights across the different people. We could find out if the hospital's doing a good job or not. It could save my life. That's mm -hmm. worth any amount of money. So how do you do that? Well, the way you do that is through local cooperatives, where, where the cooperative holds the data, doesn't own the data, holds the data for you like a credit union, and figures out whether you're getting a good deal or not. So it does a little bit of analytics with your permission on your data and says, hey, you know what? Of the 50,000 people in our Boston credit union, we see that um, they're not treating this community the same they are that. Or we're seeing it doesn't work for this community. What's going on? So that the people, by aggregating their data, can begin to push back, get better health care, get better government. The gig workers can get paid fairly and on and on. And so one of the things that's happening now is we see huge amount of interest from community organizations consumer organizations, labor unions, about being cooperatives for helping their members understand what's happening to them. In other words, helping them deal with their data to be able to get a better deal for them. So Sandy, this sounds like a really potentially interesting solution for a much bigger problem that we have in society right now, which is the, the concentration of wealth into the hands of very few people Absolutely. and capitalism's failure to essentially build a good and equitable society. Because if you take this beyond healthcare, what you're talking about, to me, it sounds like you're talking about the evolution of the corporation to the cooperation. That, first of all, I mean, you see this in the corporate world some. So PwC is not one big consulting organization. It has a separate organization, legally separate in every single country, and they don't share data between them. Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. Hindustan Lever, other sort of things, do this sort of cooperation of local things. But I think the real uh, analogy is the beginning of the 1900s when you had these huge corporations, you know, Standard Oil, GE, you know, that we're not giving workers a fair shake. And what did the workers do? They formed local cooperatives and they went on strike to push the local uh, uh, manufacturer uh, into giving them a better deal. So they, that's where labor unions came from. And eventually they turned into national things. 
that's not how they started. They started as community initiatives where people were talking with each other, sharing data, figuring out how to push back against Mr. Peabody's coal mine or whatever it was. And a generation earlier, it was farmers who were getting a raw deal from the banks and they formed financial cooperatives. That's where credit unions come from. Local people saying, this bank is not giving us a fair deal. What we're going to do is pool our money so we can loan each other money. And, and you know, we don't have to go and deal with the banker, right? And, and you see again and again, whenever there's too much power in one sector, the thing that leads the innovation is the community coming together to push back. And, and what I just said with data is exactly the same thing. These big corporations that own too much data, too uniform. We don't know if we're getting the right healthcare. We don't know if we're getting the right sort of ads. We don't know if we're getting paid correctly. And by taking control of our data in communities, we now have the power to push back. Yeah. Well, you know, we're big believers in hub culture and the idea of owning your own data. And we were the first, I think, public uh, public facing consumer technology platform to adopt the Windover principles that you had a role in developing mm -hmm. years ago now around data privacy and, and the idea of data ownership. And, you know, I, I know that for, for my own journey on that um, path, it did start with the work that you guys had done um, even six, eight years ago to, to begin educating people in the tech world about the value of owning your own data and that that was a structure that we needed to look at. Um, let's pivot a little bit now. I would like to go into a little bit of the response to uh, the social injustices that have been occurring in the United States and the protests that have resulted from that. I'd be curious, like, what your thoughts are about how technology and the macroeconomic situation, which seems to be deteriorating rapidly, and I, I assume this is something you're going to get into your new book called Building the New Economy, but do you see solutions and seeds for what you're talking about for solving the crisis that we're facing right now in the United States around uh, race and, and equality? Yeah, I do. Um uh, you know, I don't have the blue blueprint for doing it, nor actually should I have the blueprint. So uh, because I think that the solution is, is that communities, again, take control of themselves, right? Control of their data, control of their money, control of their property and govern themselves. The reason that you have communities is because you can know each other. You can get together. You can trust each other. You can build the trust. So one of the major things that's wrong in the world today is, is that there's very little trust almost anywhere. And that's because we've got very virtual, very uniform, the same rules everywhere. You don't even know the people next to you. But if, if all the government that was relevant to you was in the surrounding four blocks, you would know them. And you could come to an agreement with them about how to address the rest of the world. And that's the same thing as with unions, the same thing as the origin of credit unions. And now we can do the same thing with data. You know, and so, so for instance, let's look at inequality having to do with medical outcomes uh, in black communities. Well, why aren't the governments set up to say every community should have the same health outcomes? It's not medicine. It's public health plus medicine, okay? 
doesn't have to be uniform. Every community is going to be different. But if we knew what the health outcomes were for each community, that community could advocate for itself. And I think the legal system needs to become much more flexible as all. The final chapter in my book is called computational law. Mm -hmm. Because you can set up legal systems that are much more flexible, much more community control than what we have today. And you can insist that money be moved from downtown medical to public health in your community. And that's the type of thing they're talking about with police, too. Instead of having this uniform, you know, militia, which sometimes you might need, what they want to have is they want to have community workers that are helping actually solve the problems, which are different in every community and different standards and need different techniques. And that's part of what police reform is about, right? That seems to be... So that's kind of the heart of what police reform is about, is yeah. maybe producing a more local approach towards policing. That's right. I mean, that's the that's the core of it. And I think that the other thing that people don't realize is that, you know, they talk about all of these social support systems. In the poorest communities, none of the people that are social workers live in the community, just like very few of the police live in the community. The community ought to determine and it ought to be people in the community that are the social workers. It ought to be people in the community that are doing at least the initial policing. It'll be, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a huge disparity in views about education. A lot of the poor communities want to see different types of schools, but that's not what the big city wants, right? They want uniformity. And I think that that needs to change. Again, it's a matter of local control. Sandy, can you take us a year out from now? So it's we're mid-year in 2020. When we look at 12 months from now, and we, we've really had the chance to process what, you know, the World Economic Forum came out last week calling this the Great Reset. Do you think that in a year we'll see this as being a pivotal moment where some of these new uh, techniques were able to take root? Or do you think it's something that we're going to have to work really hard to change the system to be able to provide room for this kind of better world? Well, I think that we're going to have to work hard, but I think this will be a pivotal moment too, right? As a, as a fellow I know who is a head of a, a major bank said, you know, we had a 10-year plan for going digital, and we did it this month. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and that's exactly right. There's many things that are going to be this month. And... Um, They'll start. They won't work perfectly. Um, so I think that this notion of being much more community-centered, uh, not trying to be uniform and completely optimized, uh, will begin to take route. And, and the reason is, is to get the sort of uh, performance that you need. For instance, to have things be equal, different communities require different things. Mm -hmm. And not all of them are going to make it. That's the other thing that biology teaches us. You're going to try lots of different things. Some of them won't work. Mm -hmm. um, should be the community's choice to try them. But that community needs to be able to look at other communities and say, hey, they have a better idea, less change. You need to have those learning networks. Otherwise, it, it doesn't work. And, of course, obviously, there has to be the basic level of support for all of this. It's just like the, the doctors and uh, medical people coming up with new medicine. 
you know, the CDC, the National Institutes of Health in this country, et cetera, uh, paid for those labs, but they didn't uh, pay for doing what they're doing right now. Everybody's repurposing it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you need to have the basic infrastructure there to make progress. And somebody has to pay from that. That could be central. Um, but the determination of what direction to go, I think, should be local. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Sandy. That's a great conversation on how we're going to rebuild the new economy and the importance of resilience in this emerging world. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. 